0: Welcome to Next in Tech, a podcast that puts a spotlight on early stage Canadian tech companies that are change makers and disruptors in their respective industries. I'm your host, Sutan Sukumar, and my guest today is Brett Belchitz. He's the co-founder and CEO of Maple, a company at the forefront of innovation in telemedicine and virtual care here in Canada. Now, Brett's been an emergency room physician for the past 15 plus years, and he's even had a stint at McKinsey as a management consultant. So a very unique background, but a very relevant one for the opportunity he's tackling with Maples. Brett, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Now, there's obviously a major spotlight on digital health and, and more specifically telemedicine on back of the, the pandemic. But Maple was founded back in 2015, and so you guys have been doing this for, for a while. And you just recently announced a significant investment from Shoppers Drug Mart, a longtime partner in the amount of $75 million. So a very significant validation for what you're building. Brett maybe give us a bit of background on how Maple came together and uh, what were the key underlying problems in healthcare that you and the team were originally looking to address
1: Absolutely so we started the company as you mentioned back in 2015 and this is long before uh, I think the rush to telemedicine that we're seeing now started and in those days uh, what was driving us to get this company started really came from a lot of my experiences working as a physician on the front lines of healthcare in Canada and I don't think it's a a surprise to anybody in this country that it's pretty hard to get access to a doctor's visit. And if you look at the stats in Canada, uh, and when you see how Canada compares to other developed world nations, what is surprising I think to many Canadians is that we actually uh, routinely rank last in terms of accessibility to healthcare. So we have the longest wait times in the developed world for primary care appointments, for specialty appointments, longest wait times in the emergency room, we have the highest proportion of people who are using the emergency room for basic primary care because they have nowhere else to go. Uh, all of these things are, are are fairly unacceptable. You see stats along the lines of Canadians uh, waiting, you know, one third of Canadians waiting more than seven days to get an appointment with their family doctor, even when they're sick, which clearly isn't good enough because once seven days have passed, if you, even if you had something minor, there's a very good chance it's going to be something major by the time you actually get to see your doctor. And this was something that I was really living and breathing on the front lines. I was seeing patients day in and day out who were waiting six hours, eight hours to see me for, for really basic transactional care. And a lot of the time what they were coming in for were things like prescription renewals or you know an eye infection to be treated or urinary tract infection to be treated. And a lot of the time I actually never, needed to lay a physical hand on those patients to diagnose them. I was able just based on history and looking at them to figure out what was wrong and to help them. And at the same time as all of that, uh, you know, I would have my, and I think everybody who's got friends who, who are doctors can can empathize with this or, or identify with this, but I would have my friends and family texting me, you know, all throughout every single week, you know, letting me know of their medical problems and asking me if I could help them with their medical issues. And what I found is on a regular basis, I was able to help solve most of the medical issues for my friends and family by text message and sometimes by video. and and help them to avoid all of that uncomfortable six hour wait in the waiting room. And and so what I realized uh, were two things back then. One, um, this kind of care works. So the ability for a doctor to actually fully care for patients and give them a good outcome without actually physically touching them was very effective. And secondly, um, it was really very unfair. That anybody who happened to be friends with the doctor here in Canada had access to this kind of care, but if you weren't lucky enough to have a doctor as a friend, you were kind of stuck in your only option was six hours in the waiting room and so I had this feeling to say, you know, wouldn't it be great if I could make available to all of Canada what's available to my friends and family, and, and that was really the genesis of the idea. And it, you know, we started looking to see, you know, had anybody else done this anywhere else in the world? And you know, we were happy to see that other people were doing this quite effectively. And, and from there, you know, started the company and, and took it from there to where it is today.
0: So COVID nineteen has really been a major turning point for healthcare, and I imagine the opportunity for for you has just exploded on back of the pandemic. Can you touch on how Maple has needed to change in response to the pandemic in terms of focus and strategy?
1: Mm-hmm. So so we were growing very nicely over the course of the last five years, uh, just in, in terms of our normal telemedicine business. So so we went from zero to somewhere under about half a million patients using the platform in that span of time. And we had about, I think, about 600 healthcare providers on the platform leading into COVID. And we'd been growing regularly at a rate of a, about 10 to 15% every single month. So, so really healthy growth. But... Uh, everything about that was all private paid. So if you look at telemedicine in Canada, there was no government role in telemedicine. Governments did not pay for it. Uh, if you saw a doctor by phone or by video or by secure messaging, uh, that was something that you would have to pay for privately. So we had grown our business with either patients paying directly out of pocket, or one of the other ways that our service was very commonly paid for was employers would pay for their employees to have access to the service, or private insurers would pay for their uh, insurees to have access to the service. and. What has happened during COVID has sort of flipped the model on its head in a number of ways. So number one, um, you know, we've gone from a place where despite all of our growth, the vast majority of Canadians had never had an online medical encounter. And so the vast majority of Canadians didn't know what this was. They didn't know if it worked. They didn't know if they could trust it. And a lot of them didn't even understand, you know, what the benefits of it were other than saving them time in the waiting room to a place where all of a sudden, you know, as a result of COVID and everybody being terrified to seek care in person and doctor's offices not having enough protective equipment to provide care in person, Uh, you all of a sudden had this situation where all physicians suddenly needed to be providing care online. And very quickly, we've gone to a place where this huge untapped market of millions of medical visits uh, that are out there that we had hoped to transition to online, all of a sudden they were all transitioning to online all at the same time. So so that was a huge thing for us in terms of just the the massive uptake in terms of volume, in terms of the number of patients that wanted to come see care on our platform the number of employers that wanted to cover care um, for their employees on our platform, insurers, et cetera. And, and so we saw business volumes go up by about 600% overnight in the first two or three days of COVID, which was just an unbelievable thing to deal with. And, and you know, I think anybody who's run a technology company or actually a company of, of, of any nature knows that you have to be set up for growth. You know, if, if you're a healthy business, you're going to go up in terms of business volume over time. But most companies are set up to grow, you know, fifty percent, one hundred percent. Maybe if you're really successful, you're going to triple in a year. But but no company is equipped to to go up six hundred percent in a in a matter of a couple of days. So that was. It was an incredible stress on every single part of our business. So, you know, in terms of actually having enough doctors to cover those visits, having the technology infrastructure to co- cope with that increased volume of data going through the servers, everything kind of all, you know was, th- was threatening to crack and break all at the same time. So we had an incredible challenge in terms of. We had to onboard hundreds of doctors in the span of under a week, which we actually successfully did. We added on about two to 300 doctors in under a week. Uh, we had to upgrade our servers. I, I think, you know, we took our servers offline for about 35 seconds on the second day of COVID and, and upgraded our servers to capacity that was 10 times what they were before. And, and all of a sudden, you know, our servers went from, you know, exploding to very comfortable. Uh, you, you know, we had a whole bunch of other things happen that were, you know, right from from the perspective of looking back on it, I say, well, you know, it seems like we did all the right things, but uh, I think our business felt like it was going to explode and, and, and go down in flames every single moment of those few days. So it was very, very challenging, but really really a testament to the power of our team that we powered through it and still managed to provide good medical care in a timely manner through all of this with the systems holding up. The other big challenge uh, has been the change in funding for this kind of care. So what we've seen, uh, which is a really difficult thing to deal with uh, during COVID, is that all of the provincial governments have suddenly enacted temporary funding. Mm-hmm for this kind of care for telemedical care so across the country typically what you're seeing is that governments are now paying for things like video chats and telephone calls whereas they just wouldn't do that before and so it's placed us in a, in a position whereby uh, number one there's an incredible amount of opportunity because there is all this uh, public funding to tap into but it's difficult because our system just wasn't built for how do you tap into public funding you know we don't have an ability to validate health card health cards because. Needed that. We don't know how to actually. We don't. Well, not that we don't know how to do it, but we don't have systems that can actually build those health cards. Um, we we don't want to all of a sudden pivot all of our systems over to public payment. Uh, because if these codes disappear, and all of these public billing codes have been named as being temporary, meaning it's very likely they all will disappear as soon as the COVID crisis it sort of starts to quiet down, uh, it's a very difficult situation to suddenly pivot your entire business to something where that payment model will disappear. So we we were tasked with, you know, how do we take advantage of these public billing codes to provide greater accessibility of telemedicine while not potentially strategically torpedoing our entire business. So. Uh, you know we had to do a lot of different things um some of them were just pivots to provide care that was needed in the moment one of the things that we were really excited to do was actually open up a publicly funded COVID service so what we did in the first uh, day or two of this pandemic and the first day or two where public funding emerged in ontario is we opened up a publicly funded COVID assessment clinic on our platform at, and we opened up and we brought in about 100 doctors immediately to staff that clinic whereby any person who is a resident of the province of ontario uh, could come into that clinic, request an online visit and be assessed uh, as to whether or not they had symptoms that were uh, likely COVID and whether they needed testing or whether they needed to go to an emergency room. And that was an incredibly successful service. And we've already seen thousands of patients on that service since it started a, a few weeks ago. Um, but the, the thing about that, which was you know sort of our strategic pivot, which was a difficult decision to make, was that because we had no way to validate the health cards and we had no way to bill the health cards, there was no way that, way that we could actually make any money off of that service. And, and so we were faced with this decision that Either we, we just weren't going to do this because we didn't have the ability to build a public health care system or we would open it up, make it happen and understand that our doctors would build a health care system directly and we just wouldn't profit off of it. And we made the decision to say that we had to do what was in the best interest of, of the population and of the people. And so what we said is despite the fact that we're not going to make any money out of this service, let's just open it up. Let's worry about how we're going to make money out of this later. Let's worry about how we'll bill for this later, but let's just get our doctors on there and provide care to Ontario residents. So it was something that we were really proud of doing and really happy with how that turned out. So, so you know, we were able to get lots of patients, lots of care, get lots of physicians whose doctor's offices were closed back on the front lines, providing care in a virtual environment. I think we were able to make a really big difference, but, you know, I'd say, you know, end to end, you know, all of these challenges continue. We still don't know Uh, where the regulatory environment is going to land. Uh, You know, we're hearing changing regulations every single day from the government. Uh, And typically, you know, you get months and months of notice when these kinds of regulations change. But here we're getting zero notice. So it's overall a very, very difficult and stressful time um, to be a business like ours, despite the fact that, you know, as a whole, our business volumes have gone up so much and our revenues have gone up so much as a result of COVID. There is just so much uncertainty in our business, as with every other business, that it makes it very difficult to actually go down the path of long-term strategic decision-making and planning
0: right Uh, yeah that that does sound incredibly challenging but i have to say it is impressive how quickly you've responded to meet this increasing need for virtual care despite everything Uh, it does sound like there's some change happening from a regulatory perspective however it sounds like the government is starting to step up so um, that said what do you see adoption of telemedicine start to trend once we're in the new normal and what role can and will the government play here
1: that's a really good question, and I think it's the question that everybody is asking. So I, I think there's a few things that, that factor into this. So Number one, you know, what is the funding situation from the government? Will the government continue to fund telemedicine visits or not? I think if the government does not fund telemedicine visits, I don't think it means telemedicine disappears because we were doing very well on a private basis before the government funded. But certainly, you know, we're going to see different patterns of utilization. The, the other part of this that, you know, I think everybody wants to think about is, once the patients and the providers have had a taste of telemedicine and how well it works, will people be able to go back or will they want to go back to only in-person care? My instinct is, first of all, anytime with with COVID as even a a faint memory, I think people are going to prefer remote care wherever possible, mostly due to the fact that I think one of the things that we always spoke about, uh, even in the early years of Maple, is we always spoke about the fact that in-person care for many types of things just didn't make any sense from a safety standpoint. So, uh, you know, I was always very upset in physical practices, when I looked at the fact that we would force, for instance, an 80-year-old patient who just needed a prescription refill for their blood pressure medicine, we would force them to sit in the waiting room during flu season next to somebody with the flu. And invariably, the 80-year-old patient got the flu and got sick. And those kinds of fears, which, you know, we brought up all the time to say, this is why telemedicine was really important, which nobody really listened to back in the day because I, I think people just, you know, kind of saw it as the new new sort of fancy, shiny new object, but didn't really, you know, believe that this was for the long-term those kinds of fears have been brought to the forefront as a result of COVID. And everybody understands that it doesn't make sense to force vulnerable patients to go into a waiting room or any patients to go into a waiting room and sit next to that person who might have an infectious illness like COVID. And certainly somebody who has COVID, it doesn't make sense to bring them into any type of physical place of care unless we know that we have to see them physically where we have to render procedures and supportive care in an emergency department. So I think as long as COVID is around, until we have you know really eradicated this, I think these kinds of fears are going to persist. And no matter what the funding environment is, I think everybody is going to recognize that telemedicine is no longer just a convenience. Telemedicine is a necessity in terms of being able to provide safe and effective medical care, uh, both for the vulnerable patients who actually do not have any infections and just want to get basic care, but also for those patients who have infectious symptoms to make sure that they can get care in a way that they're not exposing others. So, so I think my short answer is that you know there's a lot of uncertainty from the regulatory regulatory environment and that will dictate the patterns of how telemedicine is used but i I really do believe i think the genie is out of the bottle and i don't think we're going to go back to a world where telemedicine is not a substantial portion of the healthcare system
0: yeah no i agree i think we're seeing early signs of structural change in patient behavior and and i can attest to that myself Uh, so brett let's uh let's switch gears to product Uh, What's your core offering in the market today? Who's your primary customer? You know, it sounds like you've shifted to a B2B to C type model over time that includes patients, insurers, and employers on the platform. So a little more sophisticated than some of the traditional models that we see in the space.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so our core business right now is a 24/7 online family physician service. So essentially what that means is it's very much like almost Uber for online doctor visits, meaning any patient anywhere in Canada can log into the platform click a button to request a visit with the first available doctor and they get connected to the first available doctor in a matter of minutes. In fact, our average wait time is about 1.5 minutes from the time you request a visit to the time you're speaking to the doctor, which is from what I understand, looking at telemedicine around the world, uh, both at other providers in Canada, as well as providers around the world, I think we have the fastest service time of any telemedicine provider in the world. Um, Now that service within that consultation, you can get full care from the doctor. So audio chats, video chats, secure messaging, digital prescriptions, laboratory tests um things like if you need a note for you know a physiotherapy referral or a sick note all of that can be provided right in the platform um that service is something that that you're absolutely right we are selling directly to consumers and we also sell it to employers and insurers and and that has been very successful i would say if you look at our business we've gone from a place where initially we were just a direct consumer to a place where the majority of our business is actually employers and insurers so about 70 percent of the sales of our company now come from employers and insurers and that's a fast-growing fast-growing market for us, and it's a very important market for us. And so where, where we have seen the, the value of that offering for employers and insurers is just the understanding that, that even before COVID, um, there was always the lack of productivity that was associated with patients having to uh, leave the workplace to go seek medical care. And, and so what would happen in a, in a typical employee, employment environment would be if any patient who is an employee uh, had any kind of symptoms, be it they had a UTI, or even if their child was sick, they would have to leave the office, uh, take their kid or take themselves to the medical visit. And the average amount of time uh, that a medical visit takes is about four hours. And so when you look at the average rate of productivity per hour of a Canadian employee across all employees in Canada, it's about $60 per hour is what a Canadian employee actually produces. So when you're looking at employees, uh, what you're losing when they take four days out of the four hours out of the office for a medical visit, even for a minor one, is about $240 of productivity. And and so it's a bit of a no-brainer for the employer clients and for the insurer clients when they look at that to say, it really does make sense to actually pay for the availability of a service like this, meaning that when their employee has a medical need or when their employee's family has a medical need, rather than four hours of lost productivity, they're on the app for 10 minutes, get their medical need bet, and then they're back at work. So it's something that we've seen you know, extensively before COVID, but now in this realm where one of the biggest worries of employers is how do I keep my workforce functioning? How do I make sure that my employees can have medical access in a way where they're not exposed to infection? How do I make sure that anybody who is sick in the workplace isn't exposing others in the workplace? This transitions from something which isn't just about productivity, it's about how do you keep your entire workforce healthy and, and away from infection and continuing to be productivity continue to be predictive for this business, rather than potentially coming to work and making others sick or going to a medical clinic and getting sick themselves.
0: Okay. And uh, given everything that's happened in the environment, how are you thinking about expanding your platform to be better positioned in the new normal post-COVID-19?
1: Mm-hmm. So so there's lots of things that we're doing. We're added, we've added on lots of other lines of service into the platforms. So with mental health care on the platform. So we have a, a network of psychotherapists that offer services across all of Canada, Those services are typically available same day. So if a patient has a mental health concern, they can see a psychotherapist right away. Uh, We have psychiatrists on the platform. We have dermatologists on the platform. We have a number of other specialties of care as well. And and so on the direct to consumer side, we certainly are seeing more and more uptake of these various offerings. On the employer side, we're seeing incredible interest, especially in mental health offerings. And so we've started to package Medical, mental health services in with our basic family practice services to employers and that's been a, a actually taken up with, with quite a bit of excitement by many employers and specifically i think where we've seen a lot of excitement is a lot of employees who are used to seeing mental health offerings where you know they pay a certain capitated rate for their employees but when their employees have a mental health need they can wait as long as two to three weeks to speak to a psychologist The opportunity to have a service like ours where their employees can actually be seen right away same day is actually incredibly valuable and 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 very much something that employers are very interested in so uh, there's lots of things that are that are coming you know we've started to also offer our platform as a service that individual clinicians can use to treat their own patients that hospitals can use to treat their own patients and governments can use as well so there's a whole other side to our business which is a licensing side where we license out our platform and that actually also increases the power of the service because especially when uh, somebody's family doctor is on the service, uh, as well as just being able to have any available doctor come to treat them, you have that continuity of care between your family practice and the visits that you have with other practitioners on the platform. So it's really sort of building out and scaling in lots of different directions that we're very excited about.
0: Got it. Yeah, no, it sounds like there's a number of levers for growth, particularly on the B2B side. You know, I think the licensing play sounds like a compelling untapped opportunity. Uh, So Brett, it's clear that You know, Maple has quite a unique and diverse model that's starting to take shape. Who do you consider to be your primary competition, and how do you focus on differentiating yourself in the market today?
1: Yeah, so, you know, you'd have to break it down across the different business lines. So we have certain parties that compete with us in different areas. So if you look at the the B2B side, employer and insurer, I I would say there's two main competitors that we regularly come up against. Uh, One is called Dialog, and one is called Akira. Um, those are companies that provide telemedicine service that are not available direct to consumer. They're only available to employers and insurers. And it's really just a very different model of telemedicine that those companies offer. So it's a model whereby uh, the primary point of care is typically to a nurse, and that nurse will triage incoming visits. And then when those nurses feel that those patients need to see a doctor, those um Nurses will then make the referral and patients can, at a later point in time, have a telemedical visit with a doctor. So I I think the big point of differentiating with our platform is that there is no middle person in those visits. Uh, On a 24-7 basis, if an employee has a medical need, they go straight to the end provider, which is the physician who can treat them and take care of them. So we like to look at our platform as kind of the Rolls-Royce of telemedicine platforms, meaning... Um, you always have access to a doctor and you always always have access to, to doctors in the fastest speed of service available, not only in Canada, but anywhere in the world, which is that 1.5 minute response time. So it's something that we're quite proud of. Um, on, on other uh, sides of the market, so in terms of direct-to-consumer, there really aren't any platforms that operate nationally on a direct-to-consumer basis the way we do. So there, there certainly are some regional players that have started to emerge in some provinces, that are servicing just patients in those provinces, but there's nobody operating on a national basis that we compete with, uh, compete against across the entire country. So, uh, it's certainly something that that we're you know watching out for constantly and aware of, but but not something that we've seen emerge to date. So, you know, if you look at the international market, which is something that you referenced as well, uh, there's tons of players out in the international market. So, a huge number of telemedicine players in the United States and certainly in Europe as well. Uh, you know, when I look at that market, it, it's certainly something that when we think about what to do internationally. I think what we're excited about is that, you know, while there are players in places like the United States and places like Europe, there are lots of underpenetrated markets around the world where there aren't large telemedicine players. So I I think I would be hesitant to say that we should go to the United States and compete against, you know, large public companies like Teladoc and go to the UK and compete against large, well-funded companies like Babylon Health. But certainly if we look at the developing world, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, et cetera, I think there's lots of opportunity across other parts of the world for us to go where there isn't a lot of developed competition.
0: Okay. Okay, great. Uh, so, Brad, how do you look at the market opportunity ahead in Canada versus globally? Is M&A part of your longer-term strategy?
1: So, for now, our, our focus is on really owning the Canadian market to the greatest extent that we can. Uh, you know, if you look at Canada, there's about 200 million medical visits that occur each year in Canada. And, and to date, you know, I don't have the stats, you know, as it's occurred during COVID, but Before COVID, less than 1% of those visits were being conducted online. So there's an enormous market still to tap into that no existing players have tapped into. So we're really excited to take advantage of that market as a whole. Um, What we're trying to do is build a cohesive system of telemedicine that is not only general practice, it's also specialty care, it's also in-hospital care. And, And so we have various platforms that work together to create a cohesive system-wide approach to telemedicine and so we're really excited to grow that to own more of the canadian market and then i think you know going forward you know not immediately not in the next year or two but i I think going a year or two out in our future once we've gotten to a point where we feel we've had enough penetration and success in canada uh, i think that's the place where we would start to consider expanding the platform out to other markets around the world um in terms of you know m a that that's always a question that you know there's always an opportunity out there to potentially buy companies that are in the same space that may have either features or clients that are just easier for us to acquire through M&A versus building ourselves. Uh, it, it's certainly something that we have our eyes open to. Uh, at, at this moment, I can tell you quite, quite honestly, there are no specific companies that are sort of in our targets or, or, or in our bullseye uh, intention to look at buying, but certainly our eyes are always open. We're always looking at potential companies that could bring uh, more value to what we're doing.
0: Brett, how are you thinking about funding future growth? Is an IPO potentially in view?
1: Um, we're at a place where where our uh, annual revenue is in a place where you know it's well into sort of the uh, the eight figure range in terms of what we're bringing in per year. So so we're very excited about you know the kinds of revenues we've been able to achieve uh, with very very little capital raised, and certainly that's our plan to go forward, which is that we raise capital based on what our specific needs are versus you know trying to have ever increasing capital raises. Uh, you know more about you know trying to have publicity over big numbers uh, as a goal, and so. I certainly think there is a role for capital raising in our future, mostly just due to the fact that we've grown so quickly over recent months that we're achieving business metrics now that we didn't think that we would be achieving for another year or two. And so we're at a place where there is just so much opportunity in front of us that we may want to actually raise a little bit more capital just to support some of our growth ambitions. But I don't think it's going to be a a huge capital raise. I think it's going to be just slightly additive to what we've already done. Um, in terms of IPO, certainly that's always a possibility. I think it, it, it's a wonderful thing to consider. And I think if we keep growing at the pace that we've been growing at, we certainly will reach a point in the near future where our revenues reach a place where we're where a company that would be large enough to consider that. Um, but I do see that as something that's, being, that's at least a couple of years out in our trajectory. It's not anything that's imminent, but certainly I, I would say further out in our trajectory, it's certainly a strong possibility.
0: So, so, Maples announced a number of partnerships in the past. How are they helping accelerate your strategy and uh, is there more to come?
1: Uh, so these have have absolutely helped our strategy so a lot of our partnerships are are based around how do we mo- either more effectively deliver our services or how do we get our services in the hands of more Canadians so you know we have clients with with large insurers so insurers like Blue cross insurers like green Shield. we have partnerships with with uh, benefit providers or or benefit managers we have partnerships with parties like motor chappelle and, and a variety of, of other brokerages and, and benefit consultancies across the country and Where those have really proven very, very powerful for us is the ability for us without having our own sales force pounding the pavement across the country to get uh, knowledge of our product and sales of our product across the country and to get our product into the hands of a lot of employers and insurers. Uh, We've had other partnerships, such as a partnership with Shoppers Drug Mart, which is a very successful partnership, to on a more direct consumer basis, get our, our services out into the hands of all of their patients across the country, specifically during COVID. And that was a huge success and something that we were very excited about. And so so you know, we've, we've seen these kinds of partnerships be very effective in terms of really raising awareness and getting our, our product and service into the hands of many, many more people then we would be able to have achieved all on our own. Um, in terms of the future, absolutely. I, I think we've got a, a really strong pipeline of partnerships that are ahead of us and, and partnerships that are under negotiation. Um, obviously, you know, can't specifically reference what they are, but I, I think there's a lot of excitement in terms of some of the parties that we're looking to work with in the coming months and coming years, who we think will allow us to not only build up our feature set and build up the capabilities of our service, but also put the service into the hands of far more Canadians than it's been accessible to date.
0: Got it. Uh, So, Brett, I'm going to leave you with a a macro-type question. Uh, So what do you see as some of the longer-term implications from COVID-19 that could influence demand or elasticity of demand for healthcare services as a whole? And I think you touched on this a bit when discussing platform, but how is Maple positioned when considering solutions beyond acute care like chronic care management or uh, or behavioral health as as an example?
1: So, so there's no question that in, in the short run, I think overall COVID has reduced demand for healthcare. If you go to any hospital setting, you'll see that the hospitals are far quieter than they normally are. Um, and that's just due to fear of treatment in person. Um, But in terms of telehealth, it certainly drastically increased demand for telehealth services. You know, as I spoke about, you know, our numbers went up about 600% overnight. Um, And and so, you know, we've landed in a place where over time, I think you're going to see some normalization. I think, you know, the scars of COVID are are at some point eventually going to fade. I think you will get to a place where the balance may shift a little bit back towards in-person care. But I think overall, what you're going to see is a a long lasting and dramatic acceleration of the demand for telehealth as a convenient and safer alternative way to, to access healthcare. But you're absolutely right. I think I think the way that telehealth is going to be used is going to be very different. So I think, you know, up until now, for the most part, it's been used for things like urgent care. So, you know, I have a UTI or I have an eye infection or I need a prescription and you'll help me right now. I think it's going to transition from that to let me get care through telehealth for all my chronic conditions. You know, I have diabetes, I have, I have uh, chronic bronchitis or emphysema or I have heart disease. And i have a broad array of people that i see to take care of me for that and i'm going to see them all online and they're all going to use these online platforms to share records and collaborate on my care And i think there's incredible opportunities for a huge percentage of chronic care to move online but not only move online I think there's huge opportunity for that care to move online in a way that's more collaborative and actually achieve better outcomes for the patient because things that are done online are much more easily shared amongst providers are much more easily collaborated upon. And as we've seen in healthcare time and time again, the more sharing and collaboration amongst your healthcare providers and the more transparent record keeping, the better the outcomes are for patients.
0: Great. Uh, that's, that's perfect. Uh, so, Brett, I just want to thank you for uh, taking the time to share the Maple story. You know, frankly, it's really impressive to see how you've been able to scale up and navigate all the rapid change in the market that you're seeing on on back of the pandemic. You know, I think you guys are really well positioned as one of the leaders in digital healthcare. So, you know, congrats on all the achievements to date, and I look forward to hearing more about your your successes. Thanks again, Brett.
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me on today.